0: or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for
1: delicious Kroger brand products because they'll
0: make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the
1: last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath and feel new?
1: What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golver with the Washington Post. I am joined on the other line by Michael the Pod Pina. Michael, it's all happening right now. I feel like we might have been in a slumber in March and April, but no more. May is here, and it's nothing but Titanic games. Over the weekend, I watched Nikola Jokic destroy the LA Clippers. I watched Pascal Siakam destroy the Los Angeles Lakers, and I watched Giannis Antetokounmpo destroy the Brooklyn Nets. All really entertaining, layered games with lots of playoff implications. And I understand off the court, you had a pretty good time as well. Did you go home to surprise your parents in Massachusetts? Is that what I heard?
0: I did, yes. Uh, my mother was very surprised. There were tears um but happy happy
1: tears or sad tears michael
0: that's that's tbd i don't know you'd have to ask her honestly (laughs) deep down and what she believes but um i'd like to think they were happy tears um but it was it was it was a lot of a lot of fun and um hadn't seen them in like a year so so that was always good
1: yeah and the the Celtics celebrated your homecoming by laying a huge egg for you um which you know (laughs) just awful by them i cannot believe it but totally on brand we could skip the Celtics bashing for today's podcast. Also happening in this very whirlwind time period, my book, Michael Bubble Ball, is finally coming out. Its official release date is Tuesday. If you guys have not uh, pre-ordered a copy, please get it. I know they're shipping already by Amazon. It's It's very exciting for me personally. It's just been a crazy year, and it's awesome to reach that finish line. At the end of today's episode, I think I'm actually going to do something that's very uncomfortable for me and hand over the car keys to Michael as the host of this episode. He's going to quiz me with a couple questions about the book that we've gotten from the Open Floor Globe members. But first things first, Michael, we got to talk about the absolute meltdown that's going right now with these Los Angeles Lakers. Um, As we're talking here on Monday, they've lost six of seven games. As I mentioned, they not only fell to the Raptors, over the weekend they also fell to the sacramento kings they're basically in a dead heat five six seven with the dallas mavericks and portland trailblazers lebron comes out and not only says i hate the play-in whoever came up with that idea should be fired but now he's apparently dealing with a re-aggravated ankle injury and and there's possibly questions did he come back too quickly after missing you know more than five weeks with that high ankle sprain on top of that michael Anthony Davis is not Anthony Davis, man. He is not playing to that all-NBA best player in the world, how you like to crown him every once in a while, standard. Mm. I'm not blaming you for that, by the way. I'm just saying he's not living mm-hmm. up to that here these last couple of uh, you know weeks since he's been back. It's just kind of all bad all the way around. I'm sure you're just loving this over there on the East Coast. (laughs) Let me ask you, is it time, full-blown panic time for Lakers fans? Because I have sensed a real shift in the discourse after this weekend. A lot of people in my Instagram DMs just freaking out.
0: Uh, You know... If I were a Lakers fan, yeah, I would be pretty nervous right now for a variety of reasons. I mean, you hit it at the top. My number one concern is Anthony Davis, because I think back to the bubble and just how just Totally dominant on both ends he was, just drilling contested mid-range jumpers, getting what he wanted in isolation, disrupting everything on the defensive end, flying around the court, contesting shots. He's not doing any of that right now, and I don't know if he's not 100% healthy or not even 90% healthy or whatever the issue may be. Um, but, I mean, there was a possession last night against the Toronto Raptors and their loss there, which was just one of the most dispiriting losses I've seen from a LeBron James team in literally years, um, where Pas- he contests a Pascal Siakam three and then sort of starts jogging back to the other end to, to leak out in transition. The ball bounces back to where si- Siakam shot it and AD is like probably five feet away and just looks at Siakam get the rebound and put it back up. It's like I, I, I don't know. It's on the if you're trying to look at it with a glass half full, you could say the Lakers are just coasting right now. This is chill mode for the entire team, and they'll they'll if they get healthy in the playoffs, no one will want to face them. But like. There's a lot of unproven elements to this team, and there is no certainty that AD will be 100% in the playoffs, and there is no certainty that LeBron, who is missing tonight's game against the Denver Nuggets with that ankle injury, will be 100% in the playoffs. So I would be, and we haven't even mentioned Dennis Schroeder, who is, it looks like he, you know, I believe he is out because of health and safety protocols well, Michael, for 14 days. So. I mean, look,
1: if I listed all the Lakers issues at the top, I'm not sure you'd get a chance to talk on this episode. I mean, <laughs> Schroeder's out for up to two weeks because of protocols, reportedly. Kyle Kuzma comes out and says, you know what, we should probably be playing Marcus Salmore. Wait a minute, <laughs> what about Andre Drummond? How does he feel about that comment, right? Mm. And then on top of that, AD says, look, this is kind of like rock bottom. We can't get any lower after that loss to the Raptors, man. It's all bad vibes up and down. Let me start with AD. He is such a skilled and talented player. It's not just him, but this is a common phenomenon. When you're as skilled and as athletically gifted as he is, it's very easy when you're watching him as a viewer to um, take his effort level for granted because it just feels like he's everywhere all the time. And that was certainly the case in last year's bubble. He just makes it look so easy. You know, he's gliding around the court. You know, he has a big-time interior physical presence when he needs to be. He's stepping out and hitting these monster three-pointers in key moments but he's going hard the whole time right i mean really really hard that is not what we're seeing here the last week or two i mean pascal siakam was blowing by him a lot you know i mean in kind of uncomfortable ways and like you're saying the little extra effort plays like that one in transition that you mentioned the leak out or even just closing out to shooters i mean you know anthony davis so long in, and and uh, um you know, well-timed on his defensive efforts, he blocks a lot of jump shots. I mean, Siakam's just getting left wide open. You saw it multiple times in that Toronto game. LeBron's looking around with palms up saying, what's going on? Like, why aren't you, what are you doing? Like, why aren't you out there? And that's just weird and inexplicable. And I think it goes back to this notion of, hey, it's, it's tougher to stay on top than get on top. Anthony Davis was awfully hungry during last year's postseason. He had a lot to prove. He had never made Mm -hmm. the deep postseason run. This was his first time to really, really shine, and he made the absolute most of it. Um, Has he gotten comfortable? I think that's a fair question.
0: Potentially. Um, You know, I don't want to try to get inside his head so much as just look at what he's doing actually on the floor. But, like, there was – you know, we could go through possession by possession – with the Lakers and that Raptors loss or the Kings loss and just point it really to ter- a, a truly atrocious um, effort plays. But there's one where like Deandre Bembry just ran a simple give and go for a layup and nobody on the Lakers rotated. Nobody moved. It's like the Lakers, their only chance to win the championship. And I mean, this their only chance is to play lights out defense for four straight rounds. That's like, That is their identity. That is uh, their calling card. That is everything for them. And, like, if this is just a switch-turning situation, that's fine. I don't want to overreact to a two- or three- or four-game sample size during the weirdest regular season of our lifetime. Um, But I just have never seen – like, I would would imagine that players would be, like – up for these games with LeBron back and everything. And then it's just like, it's the exact opposite. Like, I think that that is legitimately concerning.
1: For sure. So when you're in a spot like this, it always helps to kind of look at it from the other direction. So here, I'm going to be Ben Bus, okay? The unknown Bus child who's ready to rally the troops um, among the Lake Show, right? You would say, <laughs> hey, 21 and five start. LeBron's still the best thinker in the game. He can take it always up another notch in the postseason. And as you get deeper into series, there's nobody you trust more um Anthony Davis can't look worse cuz this is basically the worst he's played in the last 3 or 4 years and there's still an awful lot of talent if they can all get on the court simultaneously. I think that is your kind of pro Lakers defense piece right now. There's some holes in that piece, right? Andre Drummond brand new was not there for the 29 and 5 or 21 and 5 start, excuse me. Uh Ben McLemore, another new piece. LeBron on this ankle did not seem comfortable even before he shut it down early the other night kind of some weird and scary quotes after his return game saying, I'm not sure I'm ever going to be 100% again on the ankle. Um, Just dire. Not exactly the like, I'm so glad to be back. It's such a relief. Let's go take this championship, right? I mean, it really seemed like a lessening of expectations in in the messaging um, from LeBron. And then as you're mentioning, just disgruntled comments from a lot of different guys. Let me ask you this. Does Andre Drummond fit? Um, you know, I, I've had a lot of fun at his expense over the years because, you know, he, he does play just a completely different style an anti-modern style. And I think I was willing to imagine a version where like the Lakers could um, cut against the grain, be super big, super physical. LeBron would be able to find ways to operate in the space and it would all kind of come together. If I have to watch another Andre Drummond push shot from four feet, that's going to probably make it about 21% of the time. I'm going to rip what little hair out I have of my head. It's not even if I care if he makes it or not. Like the result of the game doesn't matter to me. Just the physical act of watching that is painful. Michael
0: does Andre. I mean, he's been, he's been pretty bad. I think that that's, that's fair to say. Um, and what you just outlined was very accurate and that, He's not taking a much like a, a lot of, but he's not his volume at the rim is not normally what it is.
1: He right should now. just be dunking, right? That should be his whole job. You don't get to do the little drop step, the turnaround, baby hook, any of this stuff. You can't make them, right? You just miss. They're all bad shots, right? And that's the biggest difference between him and Dwight to me, or even him and McGee from last year. No, McGee is not taking six footers. You know what I mean? He's just dunking. It's his whole job. And, and Drummond is just not really that above the rim threat in the same way.
0: Right. So it's, it, it, it's really difficult. And when we talk about fit, like the Lakers have barely played AD at the five. And again, if I was a Lakers fan, I think that AD at the five is something that I'm really waiting for, and I'm feeling really confident in the playoffs that they can put LeBron at the 4, AD at the 5, and then get some shooting, and then we're there. That's the apex of the team. But I'm just, I, I honestly don't, like, I know that Frank Vogel is a really good coach, and I know that he will go to those lineups, but I also imagine, and this was what I said, I think, when Drummond was first brought to the Lakers, it's like, can you really picture Montrezl Harrell, Marcus All, Andre Drummond, all sitting like a ton of minutes throughout a playoff series? Like, I just can't picture it in my head.
1: No, it's so, it's a classic case where nobody is happy, right?
0: Right. So, do you, do you remember
1: think, that TV show Big Love? Uh, it was about like the polygamous family, and the guy had three <laughs> yes. wives, and he could never. There was never a situation where everyone was happy at the same time. All Bill the Lakers maybe- centers. This is a, a tortured analogy, I admit. Uh, all the Lakers centers are upset right now. All of them.
0: That was that was. No, I don't think that was that was your best analogy, actually. <laughs> since I started doing the podcast with you. Um, no, you're 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 spot on, and like. It's only a 28-minute sample size, so it's basically meaningless. I understand that, but LA's offense with Drummond, LeBron, and AD is absolutely atrocious, scoring 91 points something points per 100 possessions. That's by far the worst in the league. Um, so, I mean, defensively on the glass, there is potential to dominate, but also Drummond has never really been a great defender. So I'm just... I, I don't know. I don't know what this is gonna. I mean, I don't really disagree necessarily with what Kyle Guzman said. I think that Marcus Hall is potentially a better fit here. I think that. I don't know. I, I like. I'm.
1: There's I no mean, easy answers, I think, is the is the way to look at it. I mean, I think I would actually probably prefer Marcus Sall too, but he's had his share of struggles, and he was kind of drumming before drumming in terms of who was the punching bag for the Lakers fan base, right? The tricky thing is, and I actually like that little turn from you. I mean, you were kind of Michael Buss there, another one of the Buss children hopping through saying, hey, 80 <laughs> at the five is the salvation. That's how you get back on track. Like, I'm totally with you in theory, but right now in practice— you know, what is happening with Anthony Davis? Is he going to be in a situation where like he is that completely commanding presence all by himself in the paint, you know, going out and getting those, uh, you know, challenging up for grab rebounds and, you know, getting out recovering and all that kind of stuff. And is LeBron going to be able to move well enough defensively to kind of play that four role next to him on that end? Fair questions. And they're just in a different spot than they were Um, you know, last year heading into the bubble, even I I think there's more concern now than there was even during some of those like restart games before the playoffs where the Lakers didn't look good. Um, You know, it's it's pretty messy. And they their chemistry and cohesion is just really bad. I mean, especially in contrast to the other teams above them in the standings, right? Like on a talent basis on paper, the Lakers trump everybody. But if you were saying chemistry, cohesion and like rhythm, Phoenix right now would probably be number one or Denver, then Utah because they've been slacking a little bit, right? Then the Clippers. If you have worse chemistry and cohesion than the Clippers, that is a red flag to me, right? <laughs> and you know, I'm not saying Dallas and Portland look great by any stretch, but the Lakers at this particular moment right now, their rock bottom moment, are even behind those two teams in terms of cohesion and chemistry, and that's that's a lot to make up here in two weeks.
0: Can we? zoom out and do ask some big picture questions here um like what are we thinking with the Lakers I know with the caveat that they can turn it around anytime because they have AD and LeBron but like I find it almost impossible like if LeBron goes through Denver Utah the Clippers or something like that um to get to the finals That would just be the most impressive thing anyone has ever done, and he would be officially crowned, assuming that they win it all. He would be, like, the debate about who's the best player of all time is would just officially end.
1: Come on. Don't do that to me, Michael. Don't be one of those guys. Show uh, some respect to (laughs) 2-3. I
0: forgot who I was talking to. But, like, actually doing that, like, like, it just, like, it feeds my point that I – I don't think that the Lakers are should even be considered close to favorites, or even expecting them to get to the finals. Like I, I don't, I don't expect them to get to the finals. Is I guess what I'm trying to say in so many words.
1: I'm pretty much with you. Look, I was in this camp of like, give them time, um, always defer to the defending champions, and like kind of get to that moment where like, okay, you just can't deny it anymore that they don't deserve the benefit of the doubt. The group we saw over the weekend did not deserve the benefit of doubt. Now, does that mean I'm running off their ship forever? No, but when you're looking at the possible first-round matchups, it's tough no matter where they land, and it's even tougher if they have to go through that play-in because they're losing even more rest um, you know, time and in- recovery before that series. You know, one way or the other, they're going to have to deal with Utah, Phoenix, Denver, or the Clippers. So that's going to be one of their first-round opponents, and we don't know if that's going to be 4-5. or five. We don't know if that's going to be 3-6. It could even be 2-7, and depending on how the play-in round goes, it could even be 1-8, right? Or, in theory, they could lose in the play-in, and, you know, that's one of those situations where, you know, if you're the NBA's TV executives, uh uh-oh, uh-oh, you know, you're starting to get nervous at that possibility, but any of those first-round matchups are going to be really tough for them. Um... Of those four teams, who would you want to play the most? If I'm them, I don't want any part of Denver. I'm sorry. Denver still looks awesome. Both those teams are in very different spots in last year's Western Conference Finals. Jokic would be the best player on the court in that series, given the state of LeBron's health, unless he just magically gets a bionic ankle. Um, Jokic is out of his mind right now in terms of how well he's playing. I would not want Denver. Um, I wouldn't be that afraid of the Clippers uh, because there's just always the potential for the Clippers to live down to expectations. I think I'd probably match up the best with the Suns and Utah's, you know, coming back to earth a little bit, but at the same time, like their big weakness is going to be stretching out Gobert. And if you're fiddling around with all these centers, you know, how much are you able to do that? I'm not sure. I guess if I had to rank them, I'd say, I want the Suns the most if I'm the Lakers, then the Clippers, then I'm closing my eyes.
0: (laughs) You know, we've been talking a lot about how the team at the top, like what a cat, what a a catastrophic scenario it would be if you get the one seed or the two seed and then you have to play the Lakers in round one. And now I'm kind of like, yeah, that wouldn't be fun. But I don't think I would even consider that the Lakers would be favored in that series. Oh, you're smelling blood.
1: You're smelling blood right now, Michael.
0: (laughs) Well, I also want to, you know, presuppose all of this by saying that the Lakers play the Nuggets tonight, so I don't want you to get in trouble when the our, our episode does in fact drop and the Lakers beat the Nuggets by 55 points without LeBron, so I just want to throw that caveat in there for you. But I'm with you. I would not want to play Denver. I'm obviously higher on the Clippers than you are, and Kawhi physically looks ridiculous. Like Kawhi guarding LeBron for a seven-game series is an absolute nightmare scenario for the Los Angeles Lakers. And then, yeah, Phoenix and Utah, you know, um, I think they've had wonderful regular seasons and are really complete basketball teams, and they're deeper than the Lakers are, and those would, like, I guess, like, I I don't, if I'm the Lakers, I'm not really feeling great about any of the matchups that I would have to to be up against.
1: That's very well said, and again, even with that Kawhi-LeBron matchup you're describing, that's why it goes back to AD a little bit, right? Because last year... Anytime they really needed to slow somebody down, right? It was like, hey, it's Anthony Davis to the rescue. Jimmy Butler, try to deal with Anthony Davis, just like ball Mm hawking you all over the court. I could see a scenario where peak 100% going all out. Anthony Davis just swallows up Kawhi, especially in the playoffs, you know? This version of Anthony Davis, you know, who's just getting absolutely roasted by Pascal Siakam. I don't know, man. I I don't know. That's not, uh, that's probably not the counter you're hoping it would be. Um, so we're talking a lot about the Denver, uh, Nuggets and the Los Angeles Clippers here. I do want to go back to that game over the weekend because Jokic was so dominant throughout that game. He had me overreacting in all sorts of ways, Michael. And you know, me, I like to kind of keep a calm, cool level head most of the time, as long as I'm not arguing with you about, I don't know, Zach Levine or something like that. Um, I was watching that game asking myself, is he just flat out the best player in basketball? Like, forget the MVP or like playing the best this season. Is Jokic just the best at this sport? Should he be in this conversation more than he he is or has been recently? Because usually he hasn't factored in, right? It's sort of been some combination of LeBron, Katie, Giannis, Kawhi, or Steph. That's sort of the conversation, how it usually goes. Mm -hmm. He was destroying Zubak. He made Zubak look like a third grader in that game for long stretches of it. I mean, just absolutely pirouetting around him. He was reading the defense, kind of side-eyeing, you know, catching everybody, napping, finding wide-open shooters like he always does. And this is just a light, casual day at the office for Jokic. This is what he does. He busts good teams down. This is who he is every single night this season. Is he more than the MVP, Michael? Is he more
0: than the MVP? What a question! Uh, first of all, I watched that game against the the Clippers, and I have not watched every single Nikola Jokic game this season, but that that was very close to being his most impressive. Now that he's dropped, you know, forty seven in a game, and he's had some ridiculous scoring perform- performances. He dropped fifty earlier this year against the Kings. Very very cool. But this game was just. Something about the way he was moving, Some something about, like, the way he just totally controlled and manipulated everyone on the Clippers, like, the pump and goes that he had from behind the three-point line where he's dunking. Like, what? It was just, like, it was wild. And That's he had I'm no saying. turnovers. It was insane.
1: That's what um, I'm saying, so. Michael. It's so much fun to watch. You know like the spinach when Popeye you know how like that like gave him the extra strength or whatever (laughs) Jokic's spinach is getting toasted on defense because that does happen like I mean bless his heart he tries really hard but there's definitely moments where like he just kind of can't keep up with the pace of play balls ahead of him you know he's trying to close out to shooter. somebody goes past him you know whatever it might be and there was a number of those moments in this game against the Clippers as well and I kept waiting for him to slump his shoulders, right? Or to get tired, to get fatigued, to get down on himself, to look around for help, to look to the bench. I mean, anything. And every single time there was one of those situations, it was was like ultra competitive. Like, oh, okay, well, you're going to get me on that end. I'm coming back and I'm going to hit some crazy wrong-footed 18-footer right in your eye To make it back up, right? And you want to do it again? I'm going to come back and do it again. No look cross court pass to a wide open three pointer. It was just back and forth, back and forth, literally an answer for any time he got slipped up on that defensive end. If that story continues, man, this Denver team is not only really fun to watch, they're lethal, they're dangerous. Who wants them? Nobody.
0: No, Nobody wants to play Jokic, that's obvious. I mean, there was that play at the end of the game, near the end, where Rondo comes over to double. And normally, Rondo gets a steal in that spot. He's really smart on those gambles. Jokic just kind of, like, dangled the ball out and flipped it over his shoulder <laughs> to wide open Faku in the corner. Like, it was just like, he was toying with them. But, um, so yeah, no, I don't think anyone wants any part of Jokic because... Yeah, like if I was ranking who the best players alive right now, I I would not have Jokic number one because, you know, we're about to talk about the Bucs-Nets game in a little bit. And anyone who watched that game, I mean, (laughs) Kevin Durant is... Just a he's just not even a human being. He's just a part of a different species.
1: Well, I thought you were um, gonna go with Giannis. I mean, both those guys made best no, player yeah. life cases over the weekend as well, right? I mean Giannis has forty-nine. I think Katie had what, forty two, something like that. I mean, both those guys were absolutely sensational, and there was reasons to explain where those lines came from for sure, and we'll dig into that. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying it's like Jokic by a mile. I just think that like we need to ramp this up a little bit. Because when I'm looking at like series, Nuggets versus Clippers. Jokic will be the best player in that series. It will not be Kawhi Leonard. That's not something that I would have said 12 months ago, right? That's not something I would have said during the bubble playoffs. And he's shown it multiple times this season against top flight competition. Um, You know, I think that his reputation got dinged a little bit because he was outplayed by Anthony Davis in the Western Conference Finals. And so that set him back on this hierarchy a little bit. Um, You know, that's a really tough matchup for him. No question about it. But if we're just saying like, you know, put him in a vacuum, where do you pick him? I'm picking him a lot higher than I ranked him before the season. I think I had him like six or seven on my rankings, if I'm not mistaken. I I think he's got to be higher than that.
0: Yeah, I think that what's really interesting about this discussion is the debate between him and Joel Embiid for MVP and kind of how we phrase
1: that. What debate?
0: So the, the conversation previously no, previously. I mean, previously previously Pe- people
1: yes. are talking about these things Michael. There's no debate. You know, if you have a debate, no. you need to have Lincoln and Douglas, right? You need to have like, you, I'm, know, I'm <laughs> you need to have two candidates who could really step up and have an argument. No argument. This is okay. Jokic's award, well, Michael.
0: I, I I agree. I agree. And I like how you preface this whole thing by saying you don't get worked up. But I'm, I, when I use the word debate, <laughs> I'm, I'm, more, I'm more referring to, you know, in February, Mar- like early March, when I think this was more of a conversation. Conversation, but like my point is that when we did have that conversation about Jokic versus Embiid, Embiid was always like, Yeah, he could be the best player in the world right now. He looks like the best player in the world right now. We never, no one really ever said that about Jokic. So I think it's a really interesting point for you to kind of bring up. And I mean, like when everyone is at their peak, because this season's so strange. When everyone's at their peak, like, I still think that Anthony Davis is a better player than Jokic. I still think KD. I still think Giannis. But I think it's just, it's really, really close. And it's not like Jokic has come up short in the playoffs. He's an all-time, not all-time, but he's, like, an extremely accomplished postseason performer. Like, I think about that series a couple years back against the the Blazers, where he's just, like, playing 60 minutes a night and not looking tired, and nothing makes sense. But... Yeah, I think that he needs to be more in tune with that conversation of best player alive. And I think he will be through, like, throughout the off season when we have conversations and trying to rank players and stuff like that.
1: He will be if you're with me, Michael. Let's let's do this together. Thelma and Louise, all right? We're going to drive this narrative. I kind of want the Colorado <laughs> uh, Department of Tourism to come out with a video that, like, you know, kind of a, hey, everybody, come to Colorado and experience, like, the amazing mountains and the great outdoors— mm-hmm. But I also wanted to just be highlight clips of Jokic's passes. And I want this video targeted at like the David West of the world, you know, like the guys who are gravy training on the Warriors for titles and all that. Or, you know, the Blake Griffins and LaMarcus Aldridge of the world. If you're at that stage of your career, forget about LA, forget about Brooklyn go have jokic make you look amazing. Look what he does to these people. I mean, Michael Porter Jr has more turnovers than assists this season. He's about to get a max contract because he's in Jokic's orbit, right? Faku, I mean, what a just what an experience all the way around for Faku and it's way better because he's on Jokic's team. Like he has really elevated a lot of people. That halo effect in Denver is real. And I and I just think going forward into next year, don't be afraid to be a veteran minimum guy you know, a, a biannual guy, mid-level guy, whatever, go take a chance with Jokic. He will carry you. Playoff Joker is going to get you some fun places. That's the end of can, my spiel on behalf I, of Colorado.
0: I want to make one. That was wonderful. I want to go there. I'm buying tickets right now, um, even though I was not the intended audience because <laughs> well, I'm it's not a, an NBA it, player.
1: Major airport hub too, Michael, so you can get there from just about anywhere. <laughs>
0: my last point about Jokic and this is something that I wanted to write about, but I, I think it's actually better served talking about it and describing it that way. But like there was one play earlier this season where Jokic kicked the ball ahead to Monte Morris and Monte had, there was a one defender between Monte and the basket and Monte went right at that defender and scored. I believe it was an and one and I'm watching that play and I'm like, Monte Morris being that aggressive, like, I I attributed it almost exclusively to Jokic having the confidence in Monte Morris to give him the ball in that spot, knowing he would do that. What I'm saying is a little, I hope it makes sense, like, I feel like playing with Jokic just infuses you with more confidence, let alone, like, the easy, like, back cuts for layups and stuff like that. I think when he passes you the ball, you look at him and you're like, this is one of the best basketball players alive and he is trusting me to make this shot and I am going to make this shot like I think that that actually matters I can't prove that but it it's a sense I get when I watch the 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 Nuggets play
1: Magic Johnson effect he just has that aura about him makes everyone else happy comfortable and their best selves I love it I love it I love it and I'm glad that we're starting this conversation Michael remember where you heard it here first all right open floor globe (laughs) we're banging this drum um The third game from the weekend that I did want to dive into, the aforementioned duel between KD and Giannis. I mean, Giannis red hot, you know, being dared to shoot from outside and coming through with a a number of three-pointers, I think at least four. um, Mm -hmm. He actually hit a couple of key free throws down the stretch as well, which is always kind of touch and go with Giannis. But I mean, he was putting in an awful lot of work. On the other end, Brooklyn doesn't have James Harden, but they're keeping it competitive pretty much the whole way through. KD has a shot to tie it at the buzzer. Kind of a rushed three-pointer in that situation. I didn't love that look, but it's Kevin Durant, so I'm not really going to second-guess it that hard.
0: Your boy Steve Nash called timeout there, and bad timeout by Steve Nash, I got to say.
1: You thought he should have just pushed it up?
0: Should have pushed it up. There was four seconds left. KD had the ball. Milwaukee's defense was retreating. Come on. You know, Katie's going to pull up for three. Like, how are you going to get a better shot? You didn't get a better shot. Shouldn't have called
1: time. So you think maybe like in the postgame locker room, he's showing Steve Nash the videos of his, his two walk-up threes against LeBron in the finals. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then also the video of Draymond, like dribbling the ball out of bounds that caused the huge riff in Golden State and uh, or just dribbling and, and falling out of control, not passing to Kevin Durant and just say, hey, Steve. I've got this. Just get out of my way. Don't screw this up for me. I didn't hate the timeout. Um, He just had a dribble off the catch. You know, he he shook PJ Tucker, and PJ Tucker was doing a pretty admirable job of making his life uh, a little bit more difficult than usual, getting underneath him, (laughs)
0: fouling him on every play. Yeah, great
1: call. Hacking him, you know, doing PJ Tucker things. But, you know, he he comes off and gets the space. He had one dribble to his right, could have pulled into a, a little more clean shot, I guess. But,. Who am I to instruct Kevin Durant on those basketball decisions? Probably nobody. Um, My question for you is this. Can Brooklyn stop Giannis? Or flip it around and say, can Giannis average 49 points a game in a playoff series? Because to me, this is the number one postseason matchup I want to see anywhere, is Brooklyn Hmm. versus Milwaukee. I think it's just a fascinating battle between big market, small market, the super team guy versus the stay-at-home loyal guy. Um, you know, Giannis grew up watching Kevin Durant on YouTube when he was in Greece and, you know, realizing like, hey, there could be a future for skinny guys like me. And then he went on to put on about 75 pounds that KD never put on of pure muscle and kind of Mm -hmm. transformed his game. So it's just a really, really interesting potential head-to-head duel. Um, What did you think about Brooklyn's defensive approach on Giannis? And can they do better? Because that was clearly not good enough.
0: So... I mean, Brooklyn's defensive coverage was essentially Giannis, please score 50 points. That's like what it was, right? It was like single coverage, never any help. There were moments where you felt literally bad for Blake Griffin and him just being on an island with Giannis and having no chance at all. And Blake Griffin had five fouls in 18 minutes for that very reason. Um, Like, I tip my cap to Giannis for hitting those threes. Even though I hate them so much, and I really hope that he does not take any of them in the playoffs, I was even more impressed though that Giannis was hitting those like like the followaways from ten feet, the the little like shaken rises from like the slot, just like the long twos. He was hitting them like, and I was expecting them to go in. But I mean, he missed his last one, which would have put the game away. But basically, all of them were dropping, and that is the shot that, when we talk about Giannis, even more so than the three, like I want to see him hit the contested twos. I want to see him just dominate in the mid range first, and I think that that is an area of his game he really needs to to expand and to improve upon. And I mean, he's he had success also in the post on DeAndre Jordan, but. When he settles, I just think it's it's terrible for the rhythm of Milwaukee's offense. It's one of the worst shots they can take as a team. I don't understand why he continues to take them. Um, but in this one particular game, he made enough for it to matter, and and shout out to him. But uh, but yeah, like their defense, Brooklyn's defense. I I don't. Uh, it'll be fascinating to see if they do meet up in the playoffs, if that is just straight up the coverage for an entire series. I I highly doubt it, though.
1: Well, I think they're going to do the layoff, the perimeter stuff consistently. I really think that they're going to say, look, anything outside of like 16 feet is a win. Um, our interior defense is not good enough to really handle you. So if you do want to shoot the three-pointers, we're going to give you 10 feet of space. We're going to trust that the numbers are going to come out in our favor and we're just going to back off and be disrespectful. I really think that's going to be a central part of their defensive approach. What I don't think will stay the same is this idea of like, yeah, you can just get DeAndre Jordan or Blake Griffin on the block on the you know a side of the court by yourself and just operate on them one-on-one and easily get past them for layups and dunks, right? Like, I don't think that those guys are going to be stuck on islands nearly as much as they were in this game because Giannis was just torturing Blake Griffin. And I know there's a lot of people out there have been to sending me messages when Blake dunks that crazy left hand put back dunk, and they're like, "God, what an amazing like player tanking campaign from Blake to get himself out of Detroit to go to Brooklyn. Like we've never seen one as good as this." Yes, that's true. There's definitely more game left in Blake Griffin than we realized, but defensively, man, he had no chance against Giannis. I mean, he was he was getting beat left, right, center, over the top, um, you know, giving up baseline, and so I really think that we're going to see more aggressive doubling and trapping. From Brooklyn in the postseason, um, because Giannis is so deadly and so efficient around the basket, and I think that in those situations, it's really going to be on their your know, tertiary shooters. I mean, it's not going to be Middleton. You know, you're not going to be leaving him. You're probably not going to leave Holiday unless you have to. But I think there's going to be situations where they try to make guys like Dante Divincenzo or um, you know Pat Connaughton. They're going to put the pressure on those guys yeah. to beat you, right? Um, yeah. And I was actually amazed that Nash was able to resist doubling and trapping at all in that game because it was so brutal. I mean, those guys were just getting killed. And, like, at some point, you're like, hey, I know we don't want to give away our coverage, but, like, we also don't want to, like, completely ruin our players' confidence as they're giving up, like, 10 straight dunks to Giannis. So um, I do think it was strategic on their behalf, but I was um, surprised to see the commitment level. Let me ask you this. I mean, what does Harden do to change that game? I mean, Brooklyn was right there (laughs) without him. If Harden plays, is this series going to look different? I mean, are, have you been convinced one way or the other on how this series could shake out?
0: I mean, I don't like to play that game because like, I'm not just throwing Harden in and being like, oh, the, the Brooklyn Nets would have actually won by 25 because Harden would have scored 30. Like, I, I don't, I, I can't do that. Um, obviously, you throw him into the mix. And I mean, Kyrie had a really uh really strange game like he was completely out of it and i understand that kd was just absolutely a volcano in the second half and could not be stopped no matter what he was doing i mean pj tucker slapped him on the elbow from like 20 feet and he just like drilled it like (laughs) kd is 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 insane
1: so um like well, and you throw and, Harden in. and real quick, that's another option for yeah. Brooklyn defensively. They really didn't go to KD on Giannis that much, if at all, that I remember, at least not intentionally. No. I mean, there might be switches here and there. And on the flip side, Milwaukee did actually go to a little bit of Giannis on KD late, and he actually came up with a block shot on a jumper, which you hardly ever see for KD, um, you know, to, to get a jump shot blocked. So, I think that Milwaukee was testing that one a little bit. I wouldn't be surprised if we see more of it. And I really did like that Milwaukee was spending a lot of time without Lopez, you know. They they were going smaller a lot, and I think that's in their best interest. You've been banging that drum as well, but that does put a lot of defensive pressure on Giannis in those situations too.
0: Yeah, exactly. Playing Giannis at the 5, not having Brook Lopez on the floor playing or PJ Tucker at the 5, either, you know, whatever iteration, however you want to call it. I really I like those lineups a lot and you know when Giannis is playing you know when he's setting the ball screens for Chris Middleton and Drew Holiday and then diving to the rim I think that creates just absolute nightmare scenarios for a defense like Brooklyn that wants to switch everything so I I'm you know I I think like if you were to just going back to the hypothetical you plop Harden in like does KD go off as KD did just how do those possessions Kind of uh, evolve with him in the mix. I'm not saying it would be worse. I'm not saying it would be better. It would just be a little bit different. And uh, I don't think you can necessarily rely on KD to, you know, go for 40 plus shooting basically 50% and not even needing to get to the line to win a, an entire playoff series. But there will be games where someone like Harden. Has a performance like that, or Kyrie has a performance like that. And so I, I guess I'm just like, I'm with you. I want to see these two teams match up in the playoffs. I'm fascinated to see kind of the adjustments from game to game that are made by Nash and made by Coach Bud. And like, I guess when I'm just kind of commenting on what I saw on Sunday versus what I could see in the future, I'm more like optimistic about. KD replicating that performance than I am Giannis replicating what he did for a variety of reasons.
1: Totally agree. I'm glad you said it because I did not want to rain on Milwaukee's parade because it was an awesome win and it was one of the best games of Giannis's life. Um but yeah, if we're talking about sustainability, kind of trustworthiness in terms of how you're creating shots, where you're getting them, who you're getting them against, how high quality are they? I, I still think KD has a big advantage. Um, I think Harden was a missing factor in the minutes when Katie was off the court this weekend, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Because I do think Brooklyn is actually, uh, when they're at full strength, they're a deeper team than Milwaukee by a good amount, in large part because they have so much top-end talent. It just kind of trickles down. And I think that's sort of the moment. Like, there's going to be times in that series where you're going to be able to get Harden on the court when both Katie and Giannis are off. And those are going to be the moments, as long as he's feeling good about his body, where I really favor... um, what brooklyn's able to do right and that forces some choices for bud you either have to ramp up Giannis's minutes and hope he can stay out of foul trouble and hope that he can maintain his impact um, under the heavier burden or you have to close your eyes and pray that your backup guys can hang with harden and you can get enough offense to keep up neither one of those is great options and so that's why i kind of mentioned harden as a big time x factor here but Mm -hmm. really fun really awesome win for the bucks and i'm sure they're feeling great about it
0: from bbc radio 4
1: And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win.
0: Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. The wait is over. The shy is back on Paramount Plus, and the stakes have never been higher. Everything changes on the south side when a new threat comes to power in the Showtime original
1: series from Emmy winner Lena Waithe. Battle lines will be drawn. Alliances will shift, and danger lies around every corner, leaving everyone to wonder who they can trust. Visit paramountplus.com the shy to get a 50% discount off the Paramount Plus with Showtime Annual Plan. Offer ends July 14th. Subscription auto-renews. Restrictions apply. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post
0: opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor.
1: And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu.
0: Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen.
1: All right, Michael, I I teased this earlier. I don't feel comfortable doing this as a control freak, but I'm going to hand the uh, microphone to you, let you take over this portion of the podcast you know, you're a big-time interviewer now. You've done all sorts of feature stories, GQ, Sports Illustrated, the list goes on. So I'm sweating bullets over here. You're going to grill me with some questions about my upcoming book.
0: First of all, this is an honor. Um, I, and I'm not even talking about, you know, asking you questions. Just having the the microphone, the proverbial microphone, and getting to kind of steer the ship now for the first time, I'm I'm... It's an honor, it's a privilege. I'm very excited to do it.
1: Why do I feel um, like the first question's going to be about Aaron Nesmith? You know, I'm already nervous, <laughs> you know.
0: I, you know, the fact that we haven't d- discussed uh Jason Tatum's 60 point effort is is truly criminal, but I'm going to let it slide because you wrote a book and I don't want to, you know, mar it at all. I want to I want to focus 100% on uh this wonderful contribution contribution to literature that you have bestowed up upon us all it was a great um, performance
1: and i was i was prepared to let you have a full victory lap
0: but then ran into jalen brown yeah
1: the celtic celtic man you know like it was mm. just kind of it was a real come down game afterwards and everybody's right back to you know scratching their face and, and ripping their eyeballs out of their heads after that last one on sunday so Um, I'm just going to pretend it didn't happen. Memory hole, that thing, you know, it was cool. I liked the picture you know, the 60 picture was awesome. (laughs) Um, but, uh, you know, no lasting impact, unfortunately, no carryover effect.
0: Okay. Back to bubble ball. Um, which is great. And I'm so happy that you mailed me a a copy. um, And so my first question is just, I'm going to, we have some some questions from some of our listeners, and then I have a few that I've sprinkled in here as well that you do not know ahead of time, so have fun with those. But my first question is from a fellow Michael from Tasmania. Um, Ben, can you just kind of give us a little tease of when the book comes out and just generally run us through... What it is. I mean, the the title kind of says it all, but just for, Anyone who might be confused, just a quick little synopsis of, of your project.
1: Yeah, so the open floor glow members were with us the whole way, Michael. As I got you know thrown into that bubble experience last summer, and we're doing twice weekly dispatches, you know, at every step of the way. And so, what the book is, it's kind of a time capsule of that experience, you know. And and you and I, we talked about everything from the Hong Kong controversy to Kobe Bryant's death to David Stern's death to the Rudy Gobert positive test and the shutdown to the plans to bring the bubble back in disney world and how they put that thing together the negotiations between the nba and the players association and then on top of that we spent months talking about the protests as well and and how that was going to shape um you know the bubble experience and then that's before we even get into the basketball stuff which was a really competitive high level playoffs across the board with lots of really awesome stories including jason tatum's by the way um all rolled into one, uh, you know, three month blitz of basketball. So this book really is my journey from March until October, and it's it's first person, but it's also obviously reported and based on a lot of the stories that I wrote along the way, and even some of the podcast conversations we had along the way. So I think if you're an Open Floor Globe member, you're going to be reading this book thinking, "Oh man, I remember that. Oh man, I remember that." And that's kind of what I wanted to do. I just wanted to document this time for history. So it's a basketball story, public health story business of sports story, um, social justice activism story, kind of all rolled into one. And uh, I tried to make it fun where I could, but obviously it's a lot of serious Mm -hmm. topical matter. So, um, you know, that's in there too. I would say kind of the heart of the book would be kind of a, a couple of chapters on the protest itself, the Bucks' decision to shut the bubble down halfway through. I tried to dive in super deep to that section and give you almost like a minute-by-minute minute account of that. Um, but also on the flip side, you know, as the playoffs are winding down, I'm telling you about, uh, you know, how the Lakers' season came to fruition, what the ch- uh, celebration was like in this empty arena, you know, what the champagne baths were like, what the players were yelling and screaming as they're, you know, leaving the court, all that good stuff. And uh, there's a lot of color, too. You know, I'm trying to paint the picture of what it was like to be down there in this super weird world. And I'm sure, you know, those aspects might be familiar to our listeners because they listened along the way as we were adjusting to it. Um, but even to just reflect back, you know, six or seven months later, it provides a whole new kind of uh, window into the entire experience.
0: How would you describe your, your research process? I know that it's some of it's kind of from your point of view. Some of it is reported. When you were going back and and really sitting down and buckling down and writing the thing, I mean, did you re-listen to old pods? Did you... Reread some of your own work. Just what kind of got you in the space? Did you? I mean, did you? Did you take notes in real time and then refer back to them? Just what was like the glut of of kind of what it what went into it for you?
1: No, it's a great question. So I didn't know I was going to write the book officially until about a month into the bubble experience, which actually in hindsight was earlier than it could have been because I you know kind of reached an agreement with Abrams Press pretty soon after I got to the bubble to do this project. But still, like I mentioned, you know, a good portion of the story is from March until July or August, right? So um, this book could not have been written in the same way if this was 2005, because what I did is I really leaned heavily on the contemporaneous accounts along the way. So I had dozens of stories that I wrote for The Washington Post. I had dozens of podcasts that I did with you and, and other podcasts that I did out there. I had hundreds of tweets, right? I had thousands mm-hmm. of videos and photos on my iPhone camera roll, And so I used all of those contemporaneous accounts to kind of reconstruct the narrative and the chronology to make sure I was hitting the important points. And, uh, you know, like also, this is my life, right? So I have fairly good memories of what I've been going through from uh, the past year. But even then, you know, most of the book is told in chronological order. And so like, you know, for example, I might have been like early November and I was reliving Say you know March and April, right? And then I get to mid-November, and now I'm into June. And and so to go back through it, kind of almost week by week through this experience, and to pull together the major themes and the major personalities that were dominating that entire experience was really fun and and rewarding and gratifying. And of course, I also had you know transcripts and notes from from interviews that I did with Rudy Gobert, Michelle Roberts, uh, Mark Tatum, and a whole bunch of players along the way where I could lean back on those two to kind of fill in any gaps that, that didn't come through the first time.
0: You know, it's so funny. You're talking about, you know, the, the photos that you're referring back to that are on your phone and Like, speaking – this is kind of nerdy and inside baseball, but speaking as someone who, you know, writes the occasional profile and the occasional feature where I'm on site reporting something, like, I'm always snapping photographs on my phone of everything because, like, when I go back to write a scene or recapture something – like me writing in a notebook, what I see is just so much worse when I go back to it months later than totally. or weeks later than it is actually just looking at a photograph. So that's just a little tip for anyone who is trying to do what we do, and um, um, that's just been helpful for, no, for me for, personally. And for it makes sure. sense for you to do it?
1: For sure. I yeah. mean, multimedia journalism—you got to be documenting all that stuff. And you know, the other thing too is like for press conferences, you could actually zoom in and watch players' reactions, right, with the videos. And I did that a number of times, and so I was keeping my camera rolling through all those press conferences, so that I could actually see from my own perspective, rather than from the Zoom camera perspective, in in terms of how players were reacting or what they were doing, uh, you know, and even sometimes you know guys who were off frame, kind of lingering in the background. I wanted to have those kinds of uh, you know color and touch details as well. Um, I completely agree with your advice, and the podcasting helps too because if I wanted to know how I felt. During the shutdown, well, I could go mm-hmm. listen to you and me blabbing about it for an hour and a half, right? And <laughs> then I know exactly how I felt in that moment.
0: Yeah. So next question comes from Larry, um, and it is, uh, what was your writing process like, Ben? And I'm going to actually uh, tweak Larry's question a little bit. I, 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 Maybe this is what Larry meant, the what he intended with this question. Um, but I'm curious, like, what, did you – because I know that you have other responsibilities every day as you're sitting down to actually write this thing, which makes it – like, I can't even begin to think about doing what you did. It's, like, so impressive to me. But, like, were you pulling all-nighters? Were you – like, how did it affect your schedule? Did, were you, you know, writing it in bed <laughs> because of the pandemic? Like, how did, how did you kind of work through those challenges?
1: So I think earlier in my life, Michael, I would have been a little self-conscious about describing some of these things because I wouldn't want to come across like a crazy person, um, but I'm just going to give it to <laughs> you real, and I'm going to let you judge, and you just tell me what you think, all right? Beautiful. Um, so I left the bubble after the finals in mid-October. I took one week to clear my mind. I went out into the middle of nowhere national parks to just kind of regain some you know, mental balance, And then I came back and realized, look, I've got two months to write a book that I promised would be 90,000 words. So I I can't afford to procrastinate. I can't make any mental excuses. I've got to just get on my horse with this thing, right? So I created a spreadsheet and I said, look, you've got to write 1,500 words a day, every day for 60 days. If you do that, you'll have your first draft done with enough time to go back and edit it before you send it into the publisher. Um, And so what that meant was, you know... Every single night, typically between like 7 p.m. and midnight, 9 p.m. and 1 a.m., just kind of depending, that would sort of be the book writing time. And if I could sneak in extra time on weekends or whenever else it might be, that's, uh, you know, I would, I would certainly do that to try to get ahead of pace. For me, it was important to have that pacing element so that I had self-confidence that I was actually going to get to the finish line because I had never done a project this big before, right? And I didn't want to get down on myself. I didn't want to have the stress and anxiety of getting behind schedule. And so I really tried to blitz out of the gate early so I knew I would be you know, ahead of schedule and bank some words for the future. The tricky part, which I didn't totally foresee coming, was the short off-season, right? So we had free agency. We had the draft. We had all these other things. And Looking back, I don't really know how I balanced everything. I know you were pretty uh, flexible in terms of some of the times we're recording these these shows and everything to try to make it all work, but it was really really hard. And I didn't want to do the all nighters thing, um, in part because I wanted to make sure I was like slow and steady wins the race. I wanted to manage my energy and my moods to prevent burnout, and um, you know just to make sure that I could be productive every day. I didn't want to have one day off, one day on, you know that kind of a thing would just get you behind and it would put you up a creek. So. Um, as I was going with those 1500 day word daily segments, I would try to polish those up and make sure they were almost like final quality day after day. Right. So I would just say, Hey, look, you know, today you're going to write about, uh, you know, Jokic's in- incredible performance in the first round of the playoffs, right? Whatever it might be. And then just make sure I nail that scene as best I can go back and rewrite it that same day if necessary, tweak things get it close to a final product so that once it was all done, the editing lift would be a little bit lighter. The nice thing about delivering the book on January 1st is it did give me about two months to go through an extensive editing process that was a much slower pace um, with my actual editor. So once he gave me the feedback, we were able to go back through it uh, you know, two or three times pretty thoroughly. So um, hopefully it doesn't read rushed, but I do want there to be a really strong pace with this book all the way through and, and be a pretty quick read because... Um, the bubble was a blur, and I want the book to kind of reflect that too, right? There was so much going on in such a short period of time. I wanted to read that way too.
0: Fifteen hundred words a day. I you are stronger than I, Ben. I could could not have done that for no, as I, long as you did.
1: And the tough part was, like you know, we're doing podcasts. Like I'm I'm covering the NBA. Like I'm doing season preview features and all that stuff. Like it was pretty wild. And I, in hindsight, the only reason why it happened that way is because I was naive and I didn't realize that I shouldn't have agreed to that. <laughs> it was my first book, <laughs> but here, here's the thing about it: I actually prefer it in hindsight that it went this way because when I was writing it, it was still fresh enough in my mind that I was obsessed with it. So I had enough distance to be reflective, but not too much distance to be forgetful. If that makes sense, and I think it was kind of a nice sweet spot there. Um, and you know, even going back, like you know, last month I read the audiobook for it. And so I went through the whole project one final time beginning to end. And even then, I was discovering kind of new layers and new fun things that, like, you know, I had written about or, like, I hadn't thought about in a few months that just brought a smile to my face. And, um, you know, I think that's just, you know, it's like looking at an old photo album. And this book is really trying to be a time capsule.
0: So when it comes to the release date of books, and this was actually part two of Larry's question, um, which was why did you decide to re- release it now? I'm assuming that you did not decide when the book would be released, but maybe I'm wrong. But also, I feel like the timing of the release is really good because the playoffs are about to start. Um, this regular season has been kind of a slog, to be honest, and there are a lot of games that. I mean, there's just a lot of games with a lot of players that I, I literally don't know their first and last name for the first time, I think, in my life watching the NBA. But the playoffs are about to start. There's um, um, a lot of excitement about it, about the matchups, about the plan. And so was that a factor at all in kind of uh, when the book would be released or was it just kind of serendipitously t- – did it just kind of serendipitously turn out that way?
1: Well, it's funny because when they set the date, we didn't know when the playoffs would be, right? And we didn't know when it was going to start because it was pretty much set last summer. So we were just ballparking, well, here's where it could potentially be. I think it was probably time to things like Mother's Day and Father's Day and the playoffs, like just generally speaking, <laughs> um, because that's like big book buying times, right? Like I, I know Michael, um, you bought both your parents copies of it, if I'm not mistaken, and that was really sweet, and your in-laws too, if I'm if I'm not of mistaken, yeah. <laughs> of um, really sweet of you to do that. I appreciate that. Um, I'm glad. To, I'm glad to sign the copies for them. You know, personal inscriptions. You know, no problem. Just let me know. Um, so I think that that was sort of the decision making <laughs> process. You know, with the timing, but also. Mm i think it was this idea that like look there's going to be other projects you know there's going to be an espn documentary at some point you know um the last dance style version for the lakers and that may be a few years down the road i mean so many people were capturing footage there i think there was a little bit of a competitive aspect of like get it out and and kind of be you know one of the the first major pieces about this experience and um and there's a lot of logic to that too also these characters are fresh right now right i mean lebron anthony davis jimmy butler um you know, Jokic. I mean, a lot of these guys who were big time playoff performers last year, Giannis. I mean, they're the same guys who we're talking about right now in terms Tatum. of these. Uh, yeah. Uh, Tatum. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I guess to a lesser degree, if, if you're talking about like guys who got their shots blocked in key moments. Yeah, probably. Um, so I, I think that that was, you know, timeliness was a, was a part of it too. And also why wait? You know, and I think that's, that's part of the thing publishing is, has kind of transitioned here. They want to be more timely. They want to cut down the turnaround time on some projects like this, where if the whole world is looking at the bubble, um, that means they may still be interested in, in nine months, you know, you don't want it to completely slip off people's radars, you know, two or three years down the road.
0: Yeah. So our next question comes in from Kevin. Um, did your thoughts about any aspect of the bubble change from when you lived it after you finished writing the book, Ben?
1: It's an awesome question. Um, I would say that like, you know, it's one of those things where the memories kind of get fonder, but also more extremely negative. The further back you go from it, right? Like, The average day in the bubble for me wasn't that much different than my average day here in home quarantine, right? But it did feel a lot different because we were so busy with the playoffs and it was just kind of like nonstop uh, movement. And also because, you know, there was those crazy health and safety protocols, which were really overbearing and like really regimented and kind of structured around my life. So I remember the playoffs so fondly, and I really do think it's going to be my favorite playoffs I've ever covered. I think if you asked me in 20 years, I would still say that. And at the same time, like... The more I think about the tough moments of the bubble, they like feel even tougher in hindsight, right? So like, you know, I was putting on weight, my stress level was up, I was sleeping really bad, I was feeling super isolated. Like it was, you know, it was a pretty intense mental journey. And had it been another two or three months, you know, like I I might've really cracked, (laughs) it's possible. Um, I think I did okay holding up uh, through that three month journey. So I guess there's just kind of a polarizing response to it after the fact where like, the good memories are even better, and the bad memories are even worse. Um, what about you, though? When you're looking back on the bubble, like has has your perception of anything that's happened there changed because of this upcoming season, or this this current season, I should say?
0: Yeah. Um. I mean, honestly, it's it's really tough for me to say. I I honestly don't think too much about the bubble. Like I, I, I do think about its importance, and I think about some of the events that occurred there, Um, and I think about... Like, for me, at the time, I was covering... um, I was basically covering the entire bubble for GQ, and they wanted at least one post a day. And so when I think about that much work, (laughs) like, it was... uh, It just, like, makes my... Like, I get goosebumps in kind of a bad way. Like, the hair sticks up on the back of my It was just like a, a – I have no idea how I did that, and a lot of those stories were reported. And um, But the bubble at the same time was so riveting and so, uh, like, filled with storylines that were so – like, novel, and um, I feel like even with so many people covering the bubble, that it w- it wasn't the hardest thing in the world to find unique
1: angles somewhere, at least it wasn't for me. Um, so, I guess, like... I, well, there were so many angles, does, that was the thing, like, it was everything exactly. just still down into one, like, gigantic narrative gumbo. It was, like, literally anything you want to pull on from exactly. social justice to politics to, um, you know, health to the actual basketball, to like, you know, breakout stars, to legacy. I mean, all of it was right there for the taking. The other thing I would say is this season has given me an appreciation, not only for the quality of play in the bubble, which I thought was really high and steady in large part because the players were healthy, but it's also given me an even deeper appreciation for the fact that nobody tested positive while we were there. It was an awesome mm-hmm. accomplishment that we talked about at length as it was happening. you know. And I, I told you, you know, as I was going, I felt safer and safer after being really nervous from a health standpoint before I got down there. And whoever designed those protocols, I mean, looks like a genius when you're comparing to what happened with baseball during their World Series, what's happened to the NBA during this regular season, particularly in January. Um, I mean, it was really tough, but it worked and they deserve credit for having it work during that time period. And, um, you know, it, it translated onto the court, which to me was you know, also really gratifying because it wasn't just that people were, you know, healthy and happy or, or in some cases unhappy, of course, by being isolated. But it was that they were performing at a very high level. You know, Jamal Murray, Donovan Mitchell, LeBron, AD, Tatum, Bam Adebayo, Jimmy Butler. I mean, all these guys had really awesome postseasons and um, the health part of that played a huge role
0: right and and not having to travel was a significant factor um and i like one of the things i also think about when i i think back to the bubble is just how like totally strange it was that NBA players were just like going fishing and uh, like hanging out at a swimming pool all day long, and they weren't allowed to leave. (laughs) Like just like thinking about the whole thing, it's such a ridiculous experience. And correct, you could call it you could call it an experiment as well. And it was a successful one from the from the stance of everything that you outlined. They crowned a champion. They uh, nobody tested positive, and at the time. You know, we're where right now, as we record this today, you know, people are getting vaccinated and, you know, in New York City, bars are just straight up open now. You can just be in a bar. Um which is was unthinkable when we were um when the bubble was going on and everything was shut down and so kind of as we normalize things and get back to where we were before thinking about the bubble that was like the peak it was just a kind of like peak pandemic for me and I will always associate it with that time obviously.
1: 100% 100% and I'm I'm kind of hoping this book ages like fine wine you know like I think it's going to be a wild read like if you go back and read it 10 years from now you're going to be like wait a minute like they had media members wearing smoke detectors, you know, proximity alarms that would beep if they got too close to each other like for an entire summer and they were tracking them with their wristbands and there was, you know, video surveillance that caught Daniel House with an unauthorized guest in his hotel room. I mean, I think all this stuff is going to sound super duper weird in in 10 years and it's going to be part of like, you know, kind of the the bubble mythology so to speak.
0: No, I mean, in like 15, 20 years, maybe not even that long, but like when people see footage of Stan Van Gundy or whoever it is wearing a mask right now, this season, you'll just be like, oh, yeah, that was blah, blah, blah. Now go read Bubble Ball. That'll explain everything for you. So from that perspective, you got a leg up on the competition. Um, All right, Ben, my next question is from me. Um, It's not from one of our listeners, although they have a ton of really wonderful... Uh, questions that they that they uh, submitted to us. Um, so I know that you didn't do too many um, 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 after-the-fact interviews for this book. A lot of it was covered in real time um, to just kind of capture uh, the experience of the bubble. But in a hypothetical world, you um, who is someone that you wish you could have interviewed that either wasn't available or didn't really make sense to um, to track down given the, the working conditions that you had? Just who is someone who you would love to just sit down with after the fact and ask them all sorts of questions about the bubble?
1: Yeah, you know, it's a great question. I think that... I- you know, the bubble, I was, with this book, I was trying to pull together a lot of different strands and and try to keep it as concise as possible and make it read quickly, like I said. So Mm -hmm. even like my big sit-down interviews with people, you know, it wound up like those got chopped into like pretty small pieces. Like with Rudy Gobert, for example, I talked to him for a while. He like poured his heart out. He was really, really good. But ultimately, like you're not going to spend three full chapters on like him getting into the bubble and like, you know, having that great opening game where... You know, he kind of, you know, scores the first points like there's only so much time you're going to spend on any individual Mm -hmm. scene. I think to kind of answer your question more generally, the part I would have liked to get a little bit more detail on were the intricacies of the negotiations that brought the bubble together. And whether that's coming from like a Chris Paul or an Adam Silver, um, who Mm -hmm. are both quoted in this book. It would have just been great to have like, hey, a ten-hour sit-down where you guys just say every single thing that was like a hang-up and what were the the biggest stumbling blocks and you know what else did never get reported because a lot of it, you know, was behind closed doors and so I think there's probably room to fill in those gaps as well and you know a similar deal during the the shutdown you know where there was a lot of really good reporting at the time in real time and a lot of emotional reporting uh, in real time. Coming out of that sequence, where I was relying on other people, like, you know, for LeBron gave his account of it on a, a couple of different interviews. And so I went back and tracked those down and just made sure that, you know, his voice was in there. Um, but again, any situation where you know, it didn't play out in, in public view, it would have been nice to go a little bit deeper. But I think in general, all the main characters who drove the bubble's success were included here. Um, You know, you're hearing from Adam Silver, Mark Tatum, Michelle Roberts, Chris Paul, LeBron James, Kawhi Leonard, Giannis, Joel Embiid, like all the biggest stars, you know, have their moment in this book. And, you know, part of it was because it's a first-person book, I wanted almost like my reflections on the experience as opposed to Mm -hmm. like going back to all the the main characters and asking them for their reflections after the fact because I thought it was more important to get what they were saying and how they were acting in the moment. And you know, there's going to be other projects to kind of tell their their reflections down the road, right? So um, that's how I approached it, just from like a, a writing philosophy standpoint. If that makes sense?
0: No, that that is really fascinating, and, and I'm putting you on the spot again, so I apologize, um, but I do have the microphone right now, and I am uh, the captain of this ship. But if I'm curious, if you had an opportunity, and this is something that you know, I think a lot of us would think about sometimes, but if you had an opportunity to ask LeBron um, one question about his time in the bubble, do do you have any idea what it would be?
1: So early on in the bubble, he cryptically referred to something that was bothering him off the court. And we didn't know exactly what he was talking about. And as the bubble went along, he was referencing some of the different challenges of being away from his wife and children. And his wife uh, did show up eventually, but also being separated from his mother. Um, you know, she wasn't able to be in the bubble, so he has to FaceTime her after the title. And so I, I think I would have angled it towards like, hey, you made this really weird statement, like two weeks into the bubble where you were cryptically saying something was completely off about whatever was going on off the court. What was that all about? Because it could have been a number of things. It could have been like the accommodations of his room, right? It could have been the separation from his family. It could have been his access to a, a personal chef. It could have been, uh, his exercise room that he has in, uh, at home that maybe he doesn't have the same access to workout facilities in the bubble because the teams had to share them and they had to share them in a way, uh, that was allowed to be kind of clean before and after each setting. So I'm sure that kind of threw off the routines, um, I, we never got an answer from LeBron on what it was in particular that he was referencing and so I think that's probably where I would have gone with it
0: fascinating i don't I, I vaguely remember now that you're, you're you the more you were talking about it um the the, the clearer that whole uh, uh, situation kind of became for me but that would be really interesting um well the other question then, I would
1: ask him more about would be um he was meditating a lot before games or doing Uh deep breathing exercises on the side of the court. And I happen to really like meditating. And I know he's talked about it in the context of like his sponsorship deal with an app and and how it helps him sleep. But I would love- Yeah. Well, yeah. Are you getting paid for that? I wasn't going to mention the name, but that's great. (laughs) Um, I would have liked even more details, you know, from LeBron in terms of like, how does that help him prepare before games? Because like, is he visualizing his success? Is he visualizing matchups? Is he taking himself completely out of a basketball context so he can refresh and refocus before the game? Just what's his routine there, you know, from a meditation standpoint?
0: So I don't want to, this is not sponsored, but, um, if you did listen to the Calm app, he answers some of those questions. Oh my gosh! Um, when you when you click on um, his voice to uh, to guide you through the the meditation journey.
1: Well, so I actually um, went to the Calm app unveiling of their sponsorship deal with LeBron, and he was talking about like <laughs> the sound of rain helped him fall asleep because it reminded him of his childhood in Ohio. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know that detail, but I don't know the pregame routine detail. So I'm gonna have to go figure that out. That's awesome.
0: Yeah, so I, I think we should stop talking about the Calm app, but I I did, <laughs> I did uh I I I experimented with it myself because I'm doing this big story about mental health now that should be out hopefully soon, and so I was I've been all up in meditating, meditation and all that. So um, So you
1: interviewed the Calm app? <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, we we had a we had a sit down um, negotiating the the questions beforehand was difficult with the com app it, 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 prickly fellow, but uh, we yeah. got it done. You, um, had to,
1: you had to run it through their PR person series. Exactly.
0: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, OK, Ben, so I want to wrap up with I have one more question for you and it comes in from Lars. Um what are some of the funniest slash worst questions that people have asked during this promotional tour that you're doing for the book? I mean, the jerk in me would be like the last
1: two questions that you just asked off script.
0: You know, I was about to uh, bring that up to to cut you off before you would say anything like that, but um, I knew you wouldn't.
1: No, I wouldn't. Um, This has been a really fun interview. Thank you very much, Michael. Um, On this one, I would say um, people always ask like, What's the thing that you wish had been in the book that wasn't, or and that's not exactly how you asked it because you were talking about like a specific interview, which you know there, I have like mm-hmm. a long list of white whale people I would love to interview in general, starting with uh, Michael Jordan, of course, who wouldn't want to sit down in one of those um, mansions in Florida, <laughs> like the Last Dance guys, and just go to town with questions, right? Um, but. I guess for me, like I really poured my heart and soul into this book. And I, like I just said, I devoted months and months of my life to it. And it's like 300 pages. So when the first question from some of these interviews coming out is like, well, what's in the book that you, or what's not in the book that you wish was? I'm like, can we just focus on what is in the book? <laughs> like, you know, like, <laughs> like blood, sweat, and tears are in this book. Like, let's not focus on what's not there. You know what I mean? And, but it's a totally fair question. And, and my answer on that one has typically been, i had a lot more on Kobe Bryant, just because of you know living in Los Angeles and just the trauma associated with his death for the entire city, and you know the the run up memories, um, you know in the final couple of years of his career, and ultimately like I chopped that from being probably like thirty pages uh, down to like maybe eight because you know it wasn't completely applicable to the bubble experience although of course it was mm-hmm. a major storyline for the lakers title run and i didn't want this to be a lakers book i wanted this to be a bubble book and so the lakers feature prominently late in the playoff sections but you know it's it's not just a lakers book by any stretch so that's my answer to that one um you know another question that people have asked you know that really bothered me when i was in the bubble when i first got there was basically they were asking me if I thought I, if I thought I was going to die. I mean, do you remember that? Where I was getting all these questions from people when I first got down there, which were just essentially like, hey, have you gone crazy yet? Like, do you feel scared? Like, do you think the players are going to get you sick? Like, do, does the NBA know what it's doing? And again, really fair questions, all things considered, because this was a wild science experiment that was not guaranteed to work and easily could have backfired had they handled it differently um, but, in hindsight, I really did feel a little bit turned off, I guess by the morbid curiosity aspect to it at the same time, like, look, I guess I went to the bubble so that other people didn't have to right It's kind of how I look at it. This was my volunteer service um on behalf of basketball journalism, if you want to look at it that way and so, and I happen to really enjoy my time there overall, you know, all things considered, certainly don't regret it in any way, and so uh, I guess I just have to kind of take those lumps, but in hindsight I was like going back and listening to some of those interviews and man I could almost like hear myself cringe when I'm being asked these questions because you know look they're they're tough and fair questions but man they they kind of hit hard you know
0: And in hindsight the irony is that uh whoever was asking the question from outside the bubble should have been terrified <laughs> and probably should still be um and you were in the safest place in the world so yeah. yeah, no, it, it turned
1: out that way pretty quickly, right? I mean, we figured that out within about two or three weeks, but when we first got down there, it sure didn't feel that way. Um, the other question that's always keeps coming up, I mean, you remember that video I did where I was pacing back and forth in my hotel room, of right? Of course. Yeah. So that has become my legacy, Michael, and I don't know how that happened because I feel like I've really been on the grind here since 2007 writing about basketball, but that video, for whatever reason, stuck with everyone And so especially when I'm doing interviews with people who aren't like super diehard NBA fans, they're always just like, so tell me what it was like to walk back and forth in a hotel room. And I was like, well, I'm pretty sure you can imagine it. It was pretty boring. Like, what do you want me to say? That's why I made the video to make fun of myself. Um, But I do think in hindsight, again, fair question, because that was a situation where I was just the face of everybody's consternation and um, isolation and separation and boredom and sadness all rolled into one right i mean that was the peak of the the pandemic like you're describing we'd all been locked inside for months and months there was no end in sight there was no set guidelines across the country that we had a reason to believe in it felt really really hopeless and so i think a lot of people were watching that video michael and they were saying wow finally i found somebody who has it worse than i do he's literally stuck in his hotel room that's as bad as it can get. And again, if that's my if that's my contribution to society, I'm great with it.
0: a boy. Atta boy, Ben. Um, well, those are essentially all of uh, the questions that I have for you at this time. But I mean, it goes without saying, if you already listened to this, that you should pick up Bubble Ball immediately. You should buy it as a gift for your mother for Mother's Day, as Ben um uh, passive aggressively suggested I do, uh, earlier <laughs> in this interview. Um, <laughs> um, but seriously, uh, Ben is one of the best in the business. I was very excited once I first heard that this project was, uh, uh was happening. And, um, I have a copy of the book on my coffee table. I have not had a chance to devour it yet but i am um almost torturing myself and saving it for after the season so i can give it the attention and respect that it deserves but but everyone everyone support ben um and, and and get a copy of it because i know it's going to be amazing
1: yeah, I've heard from a lot of open four glow members who have already got it pre-ordered or, or they're, you know, starting to get uh notifications on shipping. I mean, that just puts such a big smile on my face, guys. Like I said, I mean this was a labor of love, a passion project, no way around it. And for me, it's like kind of a milestone moment for my career. Like I said, I've been writing for fourteen or fifteen years. This is the first one. Um, you know, and, and for me I feel a lot of pressure, a lot of expectations on trying to make sure that it gets out there to the masses. So anything you can do to support I really, really appreciate it. If you want an inside look at the book or if you want a a longer discussion about my writing process, that stuff is on my Instagram page. Check that out at ben.golver. And you can pre-order the book, Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, Powell's, anywhere you get your book. And it's going to be in bookstores starting on Tuesday. If you do grab a copy, send me a picture of it. I would love to see it. Either email it to openfloormail at gmail.com. Or hit me up on Twitter DM or Instagram DM. I mean, it just puts a smile on my face every single time. You know, like I said, I mean, sometimes this job can kind of be thankless, Michael. We're working long hours, and we're hearing from people who love to argue with us, including each other, right? And it's just been really gratifying to uh, hear from people who have gotten a chance to take a look. So, you know, please uh, keep me in your thoughts there. All right, Michael. They can find you on Instagram and Twitter at Michael v, Victor Pina. Um, I'm on Instagram, like I said, at Ben.golver, on Twitter at BenGolver. Guys, check us out on Apple Podcasts by searching for open floor. That's two words. When you find our page, scroll down, it will say rate and review. Top five stars it's just that easy to help us spread the word we're going to be back later this week with all sorts of home stretch conversations we've got all nba awards to get into michael we've got check-ins on the uh, you know the free-falling los angeles lakers we're probably going to have to hype up Jokic at least once per episode from here on out so get ready you know thelma and louise we're doing this thing together michael all right until later this week i will talk to you talk soon Ben.